Have you heard of the Stone Age? Right? Do we live in the Stone Age today? No, we're no longer the Stone Age. Right? And after that, there was, I guess, the Iron Age. Am I not on? Okay, electronic age, that might be a good answer. I've heard other answers. I, I'm not sure that there's an official correct answer, but uh, yes, Nessia? Modern age, okay, that's probably a fair answer. Information. Information age, that's what you hear more than anything else. I have kind of a picture up there that captures part of it. Uh, you can get it on the screen. First slide, please. Oh, it's behind me, okay, I'm deceived because I expect to see it. You see, we're missing part of the information age here and not displaying it accurately. But uh, yeah, it's the information age because we're just bombarded with uh, information or messages really all day long. I was sitting there singing the song and I was reminded by the fact I should turn my phone off. So if you have your phone on right now, this could be a good reminder for you too to turn your phone off because it kept vibrating by messages that, that were being sent forth uh, between some people. I'm, I'm on a, connected to a conversation for good reason. It's an important conversation, but I, I don't want it to disturb me while I'm preaching, so I turned off uh, my phone. But yeah, we keep being bombarded with messages, not just from our cell phones. Uh, it could be through emails, uh, advertisement, uh, movies or TV shows we choose to watch, uh, what our friends are telling us, what our uh, neighbors are telling us, what our family is telling us. Uh, there's all these sources of information out there and we're just constantly being bombarded with those. And it can make it very difficult to choose <laughs> which channel to tune on, which message is for me. What is it that I really need to hear can easily get drowned out by all these messages, this information that's coming on us. So that's what we want to think about today as we will look at one particular message that was delivered by a man uh, right before Jesus came on the scene. The name of the man was John the Baptist. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3 as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, 
we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his, his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Certainly a message designed to gain our attention today as it did 2,000 years ago when John was preaching it. Why should we listen to John's message? We have a number of points that, um, that will hopefully uh, stress that. The first thing is that John's message is for us. Uh, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You will note that he doesn't address who should repent. And the reason he doesn't address it to a particular group of people is it applies to all people. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And so John's message is for you and for me. Second, it is a message that requires a response. A lot of these messages, these texts, these emails, seem to just be, you know, FYI for your information. You don't actually have to do anything about it. Not so. With John's message, it requires a response. In fact, it's a command or an imperative. Turn from your sin to God. That's what it means to repent. Right now, you're going in a certain direction. You're doing things that God doesn't want you to do. To repent means to turn from that and to instead walk toward God or rather do the things that God wants you to do. That applies to all of us because we're all sinners and so we all need to turn from our sins and toward God. Third, uh, this message is timely. John says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That had a particular significance when John was preaching the message because Jesus was coming. God sent John to prepare the people for Jesus, and Jesus would follow up. In fact, we will see him in the next verse after this passage. So it was really during John's ministry, as John was preaching, Jesus would show up one of those days and appear to the people. He was the Messiah that God promised. And he was the representative of God's kingdom. In fact, he was the king God has sent to rule over Israel and to rule over the entire world. So when John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that's the first meaning, Jesus is coming. Now, Jesus has come. <coughs> so we might say, well, it kind of loses its timeliness for us because now it's in the past. Yes, 
but Jesus is coming again. And actually, the first time Jesus came, it was as a baby. He was born in Bethlehem, and he came for the purpose of saving us from our sins. He did the work of salvation. He died on the cross for our, our sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose up to show that God was satisfied with the work Jesus did of salvation. The work of salvation is complete. Now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but one day, soon, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it will not be as a baby. It will not be to do the work of salvation. That work is complete. It will be to rule over the world and really to judge the nation, to judge this world for its, his, its rebellion against God. Now, Jesus loves us. He wants us to have a relationship with him. But if we refuse to repent, if we refuse to turn from doing things that displease God, we will experience the judgment of God when Jesus comes. And so that message is timely today. Third, this message is timely because we really don't know when we will meet God. I have a picture up there. Tell me if you recognize the person. I see Matt nodding. It's my mom, my mother. Uh, yesterday, we went to um, the California Academy of Science. For those of you who are not familiar, familiar with that, it's like a, kind of like a museum in San Francisco that has um, you know, fish and flowers and butterflies and penguins and dinosaur bones and all kinds of things that kids enjoy doing. So we went there and we had a, a very nice time. Uh, after that, we went to visit my uncle who lives in San Francisco. We went to a nice restaurant. We went to a park. Um, and then at about, I think it was close to seven in the evening, we returned from the park, we were walking uh, back to my uncle's uh, house in San Francisco. And my son comes running behind me saying, your mom fell. And uh, I turned around and there was my mother on the ground and my sister was holding my mother and uh, crying. And um, I found out that uh, my mother apparently lost consciousness uh, possibly for just an instant, but uh, she was walking. So losing consciousness while you're walking is dangerous because you will fall and you will not protect yourself. And uh, she landed on her face. She uh, cut her face pretty bad. She lost a tooth. Uh, but there was a moment there that my sister wasn't sure my mother was still alive because she was unresponsive. And what she did could have been the result of a heart attack or a stroke from which she would not have recovered. And uh, the reality is uh, my mom is 70 years old. Her mother died when she was 68 from a heart attack. We don't know. We don't know how much longer we have on this earth. Our time may be any day. And uh, when we die, we will go into the presence of God. And our relationship with God becomes infinitely important at that moment. Technically, it's infinitely important right now. But uh, 
there is no more opportunity to repent after we go and meet God face to face. And so John's message is timely. The third, or rather the next point, is that John's message was important. The message of John was important. How do we know it? Um, when I, um, I am at work, and sometime when I'm at home too, because now my work can reach me really anytime <laughs> through this thing, uh, I tend to get emails. And occasionally you get an email telling you that you will get an email. Right? It sounds kind of funny. But that's when there's a very important email that's about to come. It'll be an announcement from the CEO, or it will tell you about a class that you need to take. And uh, people really want you to pay attention to that email. They'll send you an email before that email, right, letting you know you're about to get an email. <laughs> right? It sounds kind of funny. Um, so John is one of those emails that had an email before it. And that email was in the Old Testament, we're told in verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what it's telling you is there was a prophet named Isaiah who lived about 700 years before John the Baptist, and he actually prophesied about the coming of John the Baptist. It says, you know what? A guy is going to show up crying in the wilderness. He's going to have a really important message. You better listen to it. Right? So we know that John's message was important because God thought it was so important. He, put, <laughs> he, he warned us 700 years before that that the message was coming. Right? That's how important John's message was. Uh, second... The email will usually explain why you need to pay attention to the next email that's coming. What, what's so important about that email? And God does the same for us, or Isaiah does the same for us. He describes John's ministry in this way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Do I have a, another slide here for you? So... Uh, to me, that looks like a rock sitting on the highway. How far are you going to get driving on that highway? Not very far, right? The uh, point that John is making, or Isaiah is making about John's ministry, is that God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to come into your life. He wants to, to know you and you to know him, but there's something blocking his way. That's why, why, why it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When we have a sin in our life that we're refusing to repent of, I know that this is something God doesn't want me to do, but I want to do it and I will continue to do it. It's like a rock like that in the middle of the highway that is preventing that relationship, right? It's preventing you from knowing God the way God wants to know you. And so that's why John came with his message when he says, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wants us to turn around from our sins so that we can enjoy that relationship with God. So God will have a successful entry into our lives so that people will respond to Jesus. When Jesus came and called them to himself, people would come, right? As long as we have sin in our lives that we refuse to repent of, it's like that rock in the middle of the road. That relationship is not going to go anywhere. And God cares about you so much that he sent John the Baptist and this message of repentance for you to repent of your sin, to say, you know what? What I'm doing is wrong, and what God wants me to do is right, and a relationship with God is so important that I'm willing to turn away from this sin and seek the relationship with God that he wants me to have. Third, we have the reality of John's message. The reality of John's message. Have any of you ever got an email that is not uh, quite what it seems to be? These things are called phishing, spelled with a P-H, phishing email. And the idea of that email is to rope you in, right? It's telling you, uh, something like, uh, you know, you are in danger of losing control of your bank account. You might lose money. Um, your computer is infected. And if you want to stop this bad thing from happening to you, click here, right? Don't click that button, right? That's a phishing email. It's designed to trick you to actually download a malware or something that will damage your computer that might allow someone to break into your bank account and actually steal your money. So it's, it's an email that is not what it appears to be. And at work, I have to take training classes to recognize those kinds of emails. I think I am already able to, but not everybody at my work can recognize th these emails. And my workplace, in order to protect itself from being hacked into, is making all the employees take these training classes to recognize when not to respond to an email, when an email is not what it appears to be. Or you could say when a message is not what it appears to be. Now, that's not the case with John the Baptist. John the Baptist's message was real. How can we tell? that John's message was real, well, we can tell it by looking at John's life himself. It says in verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, we might be somewhat amused by John's choice of... Uh, what would you call it, uh, clothing style, or by his diet, and we think that John is strange. But where John lived in the wilderness of Judea, this was simply the way that the poorest of the poor would live. Uh, they didn't own land. They didn't own uh, livestock. They had no source of income. So in order to get clothing, they would walk and gather camel's hair from the bushes 
where the camels would shed their hair and they could use a leather strap or something to basically put it together and put it around you, right? It was basically a, a free form of clothing, right? It would be like going to uh, the supermarket, looking in the trash heap, finding a sack of potatoes, right? And taking that and, and clothing yourself with it. We wouldn't do it here, but there are countries where people wear things like that because that's all they can afford. That's all that's available to them. Um, locusts were free food, right? They were legitimate food. They were actually kosher to eat. And uh, in the wilderness, you might find locusts and you're free to eat it. Uh, wild honey was free food, right? I imagine there would be some risk to yourself uh, going and getting it. The bees probably were not happy and you might suffer the consequence of reaching in and taking the honey, but it was free food. So John basically lived as the poorest of the poor. Why? Because he had no means of income, right? His life was dedicated to serve God. Uh, it's possible, especially as his popularity grew, as we will see, that people would have offered him other clothing and other food. And John may have refused and say, you know what? I don't want my ministry to depend on anybody else. God has provided faithfully to me, and God will continue to provide faithfully to me. And I'm just going to continue living all out for God, right? And not worry about what I'm wearing, not worry about what I'm eating. Okay? What that tells me is John was the real thing. It's when I see uh, preachers of the gospel living in mansions, uh, having a, a limousine driver, uh, that I wonder, <laughs> You know, why are they doing it? Is it possible that they're doing it for what they can get out of preaching the gospel? In the case of John, it was very clear. He was getting nothing out of the message that uh, he was preaching. I have a, another picture here. Wondering if anybody can recognize this person. That is not my mother. I'm sorry? Not my father either. He lived about uh, 150 years ago. I mean, Pop may have lived you know, up to closer to our age, but I think he, his main ministry was around 150 years ago. Anybody? Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, very good. That's the man himself. Uh, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China, and uh, he went to China desiring to uh, reach uh, the lost uh, millions of China. China had, at that time, very few converts. Today, China may have more Christians in the United States. But uh, at that time, China was completely unreached. It had some contact with the West. Western countries have set up um, regions in, in cities along the coast where they had some sort of trade agreement with China. And uh, missionaries were allowed into those uh, cities and, and may have even had general access to China at the time. But, uh, so he found, as he went there, that there were actually quite a few missionaries living in these coastal cities, but they were seeing very little to no fruit at all in China, meaning the Chinese did not receive the message, the Chinese did not become Christian. And... Uh, he 
noticed that the missionaries were all living in the western quarters of the city, cities, meaning the areas where the western people were confined to. They were wearing western clothes. They were living by western lifestyle, which were way above those of the average Chinese. And uh, he realized that all these things were barriers to Chinese from believing the gospel. You would go and find an interpreter, and you'd have the interpreter maybe explaining the gospel to a Chinese person, but it would be clear he was an interpreter. You were the person, the source of the message, and there would be just a disconnect. You know, why should I believe what you're saying? Remember this phishing email? Why should I believe what that email says? And uh, Hudson Taylor changed his lifestyle. He adopted a Chinese lifestyle. He moved out of the Western Quarter to just rent an apartment in, a, in part of the city that was just Chinese. Uh, he, he came, he went down, if you would, to their lifestyle. He lived the same uh, difficult life that the average Chinese lived, he learned their language, and uh, he started a work that had impact all over China, uh, that saw thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands people coming to know the Lord. Why? Because he was the real thing. And the Chinese were able to connect with him and realize here's a person who believes what he preaches because he left all the comforts of Western civilization. He's putting his life on the line time and time again to just bring us this message. And that's what we would expect from a message that tells us how God loves us and sent his son into the world to die for our sins and is offering us eternal life. That's what we would do if we believed the message like that. We wouldn't live in a secure part of a, of a Western quarter of a, of a Chinese city and not bother learning the language and come down to the level of the people to whom we're supposed to reach with the gospel. Right? There was a life that was evidence of the truth of the message that it was carrying. And that was the case about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the real thing. Fourth, we see the impact of John the Baptist or the message of John the Baptist in verse 5, it says, then, all, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. I have a slide showing uh, the map of Israel. So uh, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee on top to the Dead Sea. Um, the Judea would be kind of the southern part of the map with uh, the Galilean, Galilean top. Samaria is in the middle. Uh, Perea, Decapolis, and Nabatea are on the right-hand side. And it says here that Jerusalem, so that would be the people living in Jerusalem. I don't know if you can See it? It's over here. I need a, a stick almost. Uh, and then Judea, all this region here, and then all the region around the Jordan, so go up and down, so that would be Perea, Samaria, and Galilee, came to John the Baptist. 
uh, that would be many, many people that uh, came to John the Baptist's message. They recognized that his message was for them. They recognized that uh, the message required a response. They recognized that the message was timely. Uh, they recognized that it was the real thing, and so they responded by coming to John and then being baptized. I have another slide for that. So this is obviously a kind of a mock-up of, of what people think it looked at, like because we didn't have a color picture then. The world was still black and white at the time. Uh, but uh, yeah, people would have come to be baptized. That would have meant uh, getting into the Jordan River and being immersed by John in the Jordan River. And then it says that they would confess their sins. So that means they would tell the people around them the wrong things that they have been doing up to that point as really a way of leaving them behind. Remember, to repent is to turn from your sin to God. And uh, what better way to show your determination to do it than confessing your sins, right? We want to hide our sins. We don't want people to know the wrong things that we're doing. So a willingness to be baptized and to confess your sins is showing a willingness to turn from your sins and then to follow God. So that's the response John was seeing, again, for many, many people. And, and that's wonderful, right? What a time to have been there, to see the multitude coming, uh, listening to God's messenger, uh, listening to God's message, responding to God's message. Uh, we enjoy sometimes listening to stories of revivals from the past. This would have been a great revival to have hit the nation of Israel at that time. So very exciting. Um, we want to next note the depth of John's message. I think it would have been easy uh, for John at this particular time to get uh, a big head and say, wow, look at the impact of my ministry. This is wonderful. Come on, come one, come all. Come be baptized. Confess your sins. This is wonderful. But we see John uh, was, was not just concerned about people's outer action. He was concerned about their heart and the reality of their actions. In verse 7 it says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, John was concerned about the reality. These would have been religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, would be kind of the, the known um, uh, religious people of the day. Today, you would see some people who are just living their lives, and then you see some people that are going to church, right? And you'd say, okay, the people going to church, they're the religious one, they're the spiritual one. Well, that would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would have been the churchgoers of the day, uh, the ones that everybody expected must be especially spiritual. And here are these very quote-unquote, recognize spiritual people coming to John's baptism, and John calls them a brood of vipers, which means children of snakes, right? I mean, that doesn't sound like a crowd pleaser. Uh, certainly, it wasn't pleasing to the Pharisees 
and Sadducees to say that. Now, why would John say that? Well, John could see the same thing that Jesus could see in their lives. Jesus says of them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees wanted to appear spiritual. They wanted people to think highly of them. They wanted people to call them rabbi, rabbi, and give them the best places at the feast. But the reality is, was hypocrisy. They, were not, they didn't truly love God. And uh, they didn't uh, really do things in a way that pleased God. They, they were just uh, putting on a show. Jesus could see it, and John could see it. And as they were coming to his baptism, John was able to see through their action that this was a show. They wanted to show how spiritual they were. If you were standing there at the bunk and watching person after person being baptized, you'd say, that's wonderful. Here are people who are really spiritual. They're really seeking after God. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't want to be left out, and they came to be baptized too, just so that people could see them being baptized and would say, boy, this is a person who's really spiritual. I mean, we thought they were spiritual, but now they're really spiritual. And John was calling them brood of vipers, right? Why are you even here? You're not convicted of your own sins. In fact, John could see that they had a false confidence. He says, um, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. I used to work with a group called Jews for Jesus. And uh, one of the um, times I was working with them, I went to New York and I passed out tracts, uh, inviting people to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And uh, I was wearing a T-shirt that said Jews for Jesus on it. And uh, I was approached by a Hasidic Jew. For those of you who are not familiar with them, they're the ones who usually will wear all black. They'll have a black hat, and they'll have, uh, you know, kind of the hair that goes around in a circle. So to me, those, those would be the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And... Um, I'd usually be scared when they would approach me because they would often be the most hostile of the, of the people. Uh, you know, they might, you know, knock the tracts out of my hand. They might spit at me. Uh, they might call me names. Uh, I was once actually hit by a person. But this person seemed to actually be genuinely interested in my spiritual condition. And I was surprised because what he wanted to know was, was my father Jewish? Was my mother Jewish? Was I circumcised on the eighth day? And I assured him, yes, 
My father's Jewish, my mother's Jewish, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He said, okay, you'll find it. What he meant by that is he was assured that I was going to heaven based on those facts. That was good enough for, for a religious Jew at the time. Being a descendant of Abraham guaranteed a place in heaven because they were God's chosen people, right? And so that was the confidence that the Pharisees and Sadducees had. Yes, they were doing these actions signifying repentance, which wasn't real, by the way, but their confidence was in their Judaism. The very fact they were Jews assured them, convinced them that they were fine with God. And John was telling them, that's not good enough. Why? Well, for one thing, God can take these stones and make children for Abraham out of those stones. Right? He started with dirt or dust to make Adam and Eve. It's not hard for God to make people. Right? What's hard for God is that big rock we have in our hearts, a refusal to repent of our sins that keeps us from God. That's the problem. God is a gentleman. He will not have a relationship with us against our will. If we don't want God and tell him we don't want him, he will not have a relationship with us. He will be separated from us. And we will forever be separated from him. Right? And so that's why John says, you know, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And he warns them, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. When do you lay the axe to the root of the tree? When you're about to cut it down. Right? The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Your confidence in your Judaism is false. It will not get you to heaven. What are fruits worthy of repentance? That's a good question. And thankfully, others asked that question of John. So we don't have to guess what John would say. In Luke chapter 3, verse 10, it says, So the people asked him, meaning John, the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, So they're asking, What shall we do? Okay, okay, we repented, John. We did what we said. We turned from our sins, and we're going to follow God. What should we do? And he says, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has not. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone <coughs> or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So we have here three groups of people. One of them <coughs> is a group that has stuff, right? The one who has two tunics or the one that has perhaps more food than they need to sustain themselves. And what John is saying, well, I want you to think of the person who doesn't have any. And the one that doesn't have any, give it to them. Now, it's probably not limited to food and clothing. Uh, it could include uh, time. It could include strength. Uh, there may be people of our need that could use a visit of encouragement, and you have a little bit of time. Now, you could spend that time 
uh, playing your computer games or golf or whatever your favorite activity is, or you could use that time to encourage others. Um, there's, there's lots of things that we have and there's lots of needy people around us and John is saying, well, do that. Use what you have to help others that are in need. The second and third group that John is referring to are people of position of power, the tax collector. If I was a Roman tax collector, I could come to Matt and say, Matt, you owe the government $2,000. And uh, Matt, not wanting to get in trouble with the IRS, would uh, quickly get his checkbook out and write me a check for $2,000 and give it to me. But you know what? He only owes $1,000 to the government. I'm going to pocket the other half in my pocket. Right? That's what these tax collectors were doing. And John was saying, well, don't ask more than is required of you. Right? Simply treat people fairly. Don't make them you know, pay you more than they really owe you. Right? The third group of people was soldiers. To the soldiers, he says, don't intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. So I'm a soldier, a Roman soldier, has a spear, and I'll come to Howard and say, Howard, I really like that laptop or uh, that iPad you have. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and if he <laughs> resists, well, I have a big spear, right? Or I call my friends, the soldiers, you know, and we take him, we throw him in prison or, or do worse to him to get what we want. So that's when you have a position of power over other people. So interestingly, what is the evidence that we have really repented? What is the fruit of repentance? It's really how we treat other people. Do we show love to other people or do we show love to ourselves? Meaning selfishness. Right? That's the evidence of repentance. It reminds me of First uh, John 4.20. John says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? It's very easy to say that you love God. It's very hard to show. Right? because God doesn't need anything for me. But if I have my brother here who has need, and I take care of him, that's something you can see, and that's evidence that I actually love God. Because you know what? God made that person in his image, and God loves that person, and God sent his son to die for that person. And I'm not willing to love them. I'm not willing to share with them. I'm taking advantage of them. That's not evidence that I love God. Right? So the fruit of repentance is really how I'm treating the people around me. In particular, am I showing them love? And that's what John wanted to see. It's uh, as valid today as it was then. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How could you tell if the profession was false? It was in their day-to-day -day life. Right? Did they do the will of his Father in heaven? It was a, a sign of whether they truly repented 
whether they truly were right with God. It's not how we become saved, but it's the evidence of salvation is the way we actually live our lives. Finally, we see the confidence of John's salvation. I'm sorry, John's message. John's confidence was in Christ. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus <clears throat> and knowing that really the solid work was the work that Jesus himself was going to do. It wasn't the work that John was going to do. John could preach to people about repentance. He could baptize people with water. But you know what? The person who came out of the water and turned around has the same sinful nature that he did when he first went in and doesn't really have a power to live a life pleasing to God. And what changes that is the Lord Jesus, because he baptized us in the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to actually live a life that pleases God. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Where do we get love for other people? The Holy Spirit. Peace, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. So the real power for John's listeners to live a life that pleased God had to come from God himself. And that was something Jesus was going to do for those who believed in him. Jesus was the one who would baptize people in the Holy Spirit. It's not something that John could do. Second, uh, John couldn't determine if a person really uh, was saved or not, if a person really had a relationship with God or not. Again, he could preach to people, he could baptize people, but that work was ultimately the work that the Lord Jesus was going to do. Right? It uh, describes it here uh, through... Uh, what might be uh, regarded an agricultural um, illustration. So I have a, a picture for that. It says, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. So that's what wheat looks like. So usually you just see the stalk and then, uh, what is that called? The kernel at the end? I need to study up on my agricultural term. I'm sorry? Sheath. I think the sheath is what goes around them, no? Okay, maybe it's just sheath. I'll, I'll, I'll stand corrected. I'll do my research and come back next week. Uh, but yeah, so what you really want, what's really precious is the stuff at the bottom, and those are inside uh, that stock. You see it has those, those uh, you know, little holding pockets that are basically holding the grain. The grain is what's precious, right? That's what the farmer wants. He'll take that, he'll make it into flour, 
baker will take the flour, make it into bread, sell the bread, you know, people can eat, and everybody who was part of the process gets to make money out of it. So that's really the precious stuff. Uh, the grains is what's really valuable, and that's really what, what is called the wheat here. The wheat is those, those uh, grains uh, that are in the picture. And uh, it says that his, meaning Jesus' winnowing fan, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. So that's a threshing floor over here. So what they do there is they take those stalks, and then people or animal or some mechanical tools will be used to, to kind of smash the plant, to beat it up, to step on it, and that gets the grains or the wheat out of the plant material. It separates the two, right? So the next picture uh, kind of shows what you have left at the end of that process, right? You basically have all this plant material with the grains underneath, right? Or maybe mixed with it. So you need one more step, and that's the next picture. Uh, that is what some people might call a winnowing fan or a winnowing fork. And the idea is if they will pick up that plant material and they'll throw it up. And because the wheat is heavy, it will fall to the bottom. And the chaff, which is the leftover plant material, will blow in the wind, right? Or if you have a fan, maybe you could use that to, again, kind of help blow away the light material that's not of interest to you and keep the wheat, the, the valuable part of the plant, the part that you eat, actually leaves it behind. So it describes Jesus as the one who is doing that process. And what does it teach us? Well, it teaches us that you are precious to him, right? And he's the one who's really at work in trying to, to separate that which is valuable. Really, he wants a relationship with you, right? And he's trying to get rid of, of our sin or rather our refusal to follow him, right? God has to work in our lives to bring us to the point of recognizing that we're destroying ourselves in order to get what he wants, which is a relationship with us. And at the end of the day, if we are not willing to turn with him, all that's left is that which rejected God, and we will be forever separated from God. Right? Uh, and what it teaches me is that we're precious to him. We're so important. We're so valuable. A relationship with him is so important to God that he is willing to go through this process. This is a verse that somebody else actually quoted in our meeting this morning. Luke 15, 10, Jesus says that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Why is there joy in the presence of God over one sinner that repents? Because God is rejoicing. God has finally found what he wants, and that's a relationship with you. And he's willing to do everything in his power to bring that to pass. Now, God doesn't rejoice in punishing or separating people from him for all of eternity, but he will do it. But he doesn't rejoice in it. Ezekiel 18 30 through 32 tells us, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions so that 
iniquity will not be your ruin. He doesn't want us to be destroyed by our sin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Where can we get a new heart and a new spirit? It's from him. Right? The Lord Jesus offers us a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? That's the consequence if we refuse to come to him. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He has no pleasure in judgment. He has no pleasure in separating people from himself for eternity. His pleasure is in a relationship with us. And that's what he wants for you and for me. Finally, let me just close with the applicability of John's message to us today. Is what John said applicable to us today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you wheat or are you chaff? Do you have a relationship with God? Or are you separated from him now? and a danger of being separated from him for all of eternity. If you think you are wheat, on what are you basing that confidence? Is it because your parents are Christian? Or something else? Or is there evidence in your life that shows repentance? How are you treating those that are around you? And then finally, if you, if you are um, a believer in the Lord Jesus, uh, we, we have an opportunity today. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven eleven. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's a really strange verse after studying about John the Baptist. It's like, how could there be anyone greater than John the Baptist? But now you're telling me he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he? Are you in the kingdom of heaven? Well, you are if, if the king of heaven is your king, right? That puts you in the kingdom of heaven. How does that make you greater than John the Baptist, well, you have actually, believe it or not, a greater message to share with people than John the Baptist has. You can go to people and say to them, according to the word of God, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. John could not say that, right? He did not have the full gospel. He knew people needed to repent from their sins. He knew Jesus was coming and Jesus was going to save them. He didn't know the details and he certainly couldn't speak of them as having already been accomplished. We can go and tell people that the work of salvation is accomplished. Jesus has already died for their sins. They need to do nothing else other than believe, put their faith in him for their salvation. We can still take examples from John the Baptist. We have a greater message. Let us be as real as John the Baptist was. Let us be as deep in wanting to see the reality of salvation in those we minister to. 
And let us be as confident in Christ's saving power and leave the results in his hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for John the Baptist and his willingness to carry your message uh, to, to those around him in, in his day. And we pray for ourselves that you might help us also be as faithful in carrying your message to those who do not know you. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that they will realize that they are very precious in your sight and you desire for them to have a relationship with yourself for their and your infinite joy. For we ask it in your name. Amen.